Now would you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. It's my privilege to try once again to tell that old, old story. Another aspect or part of it. What I've called this morning his poverty. Please read with me Philippians 2 verses 6 and 7. Speaking of Christ, we read, Who, subsisting in God's form, didn't consider equality with God as robbery. Nevertheless, he emptied himself, taking a servant's form, becoming in men's likeness. I'm also going to read from 2 Corinthians 8, 9 passage where Paul describes this using another imagery he says Adam alluded to this text in his prayer for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might be made rich. Well, just in that statement, being made rich through somebody's poverty, it shows us the kind of mystery, incomprehensible mystery that we're dealing with. And so let's pray and ask for God's blessing as we consider his holy word, focusing on that aspect of Christ's story in which he becomes Father, thank you so much for the privilege of worshiping you today. Thank you for the sense of your grace and presence with us. Thank you, Lord, for the remembrance of Jesus' suffering and death and atonement and for the privilege of partaking in it. And now, dear Father, we acknowledge our total and complete dependence upon you Unless you send us the Holy Spirit, this will not be of any benefit to anyone, neither saint nor sinner. But we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit now in great measure upon your holy word, that it would not come back empty, but rather that it would accomplish your will. We don't want to see anybody sitting here this morning hardened in their sin. We want to see them softened brought to saving faith and for the saints that have already by grace been softened and given the gift of faith that our hearts would increase in love to you in appreciation to you in a willingness to be made more like Jesus in everything we do bless to that end we ask it in his name amen Now, as I said last time, the story of Jesus Christ does not begin once upon a time, but once when there was no space or time, when only God was. Christ is without beginning. He is the supreme being, God the Son. And last time we considered his deity, eternal trinity, supreme majesty, 
and personal equality with God the Father. And now today, please look with me at how Paul marvels at what he himself in 2 Corinthians 8, as we read, describes as his poverty. He became poor. Consider with me the manner of his poverty, how he became poor, the mystery of his poverty, a poor God, and the motive for his poverty. Why did he become poor? And what possible relevance would that have for us? So first of all, the manner of his poverty. Paul tells us, who subsisting in God's form didn't consider equality with God as robbery. Nevertheless, but he emptied himself. How did he become poor? He became poor when he emptied himself by taking, adding a servant's form by becoming in men's likeness. Now, in worldly terms, the rich have an abundance of material possessions, much more than they need to sustain life. And with this abundance of material things, the rich have worldly power. They build cities or they build armies or monuments. Now, Christ, while he was on earth, didn't accumulate great stores of material wealth or build earthly monuments to himself or a sprawling worldly city or a big military army like the wealthy and worldly goods do. While he was on earth, he didn't accumulate large deposits of silver or gold or multitudes of sheep and cattle or own large tracts of land or build in li- or live in palaces decked with the finest things that money could buy. That's not the way he lived when he was here. He didn't come here and live like a wealthy, worldly king. The poor, in contrast, do none of these things. And some, what we call the abject poor, are without the means of supporting themselves. They and their children lack adequate clothing or shelter or food to sustain life. So speaking of them, the the disciples, the apostles said, this might have been sold and given to the poor. Now Christ, when he was on earth, wasn't living in abject poverty. So that the apostle said, well, let's give this to Jesus because he doesn't have anything to to live by. No, no, that's not what it's talking about. And sometimes in this world, those that are rich in this world become poor. How does that happen? Well, like, for example, Job lost all of his wealth when his possessions were stolen from him. Or the prodigal son became poor by foolishly squandering his wealth. Or sometimes people become poor through a famine or through a war that brings them from wealth to poverty. So how did God the Son, Christ, 
become poor. What does the text say? He he paints a picture or a portrait of this becoming poor, this poverty of God the Son, with three colors, emptying, taking, and becoming. Emptying, taking, and becoming. It says, he emptied himself by taking a servant's form by becoming in men's likeness. So this poverty wasn't forced on him by some famine or war or robbery. He emptied himself. He impoverished himself. He lowered himself. Now what does it mean to empty himself? I could take you to several places where this word is used in the New Testament, but in the interest of time and the fact that this isn't a theological lecture, I'm just going to read one text where the word is used of emptying, and that's in Romans 4 and verse 14. And this is what it says. It says, For if those which are of the law are heirs, faith is emptied. It's translated, faith is made void and the promise is made of none effect. So what is he saying? If Abraham's heirs, in terms of the spiritual blessings, are unconverted Jews, then faith, in such a case, would be emptied made void. Now clearly, this doesn't mean that faith would have its essential attributes altered. It doesn't mean that if the the, the unconverted Jews were the heirs of Abraham's spiritual blessing, that faith would equal unbelief or that faith would equal works, or that faith would equal sight. That's not the point. Faith would still be faith. You follow what I'm saying? It would still be faith. It would still be knowing the story of Jesus, affirming it to be true, and trusting in Jesus only and personally to save you from your sin. But if the unbelieving Jews were the heirs of spiritual things, faith would still be faith, but it would be emptied faith. It would be faith made void. What does that mean? Would still be faith. But if unbelievers inherited the spiritual things, then faith would have its vital significance and importance obscured It would be lowered and impoverished. The honor that is due to faith as the distinctive of Abraham's spiritual heirs would be concealed and hidden and undermined. Would lose its significance. Doesn't mean it would be changed into unbelief or anything else. But it would lose its significance. 
Its value and honor and glory would be concealed if unbelievers were the heirs of spiritual things and not believers. So how, what does that mean then with regard to Christ? Well, for that reason, the, the King James translated this, but he made himself of no reputation. And the NIV even says he made himself nothing, taking the form of the servant. So when Christ, God the Son, emptied himself, he impoverished and lowered himself, he became poor. He concealed, he hid, he veiled the inherent and essential honor and glory of his supreme being. Because when he did that, at the very same time, he was still in his deity, subsisting in God's form. Now the text highlights two ways that he veiled the glory of his deity and thus impoverished and lowered himself. How did he do that? He did it by taking a servant's form. And he did it by becoming in men's likeness. Now let's look at the first of these. Emptying by taking a servant's form. Now the form of a servant involves the distinguishing features by which a servant is known and recognized in distinction from a master or a free man. A master is human, a servant is human, a free man is human. But a servant and a master and a free man have different distinguishing features by which we recognize the one and not the other. So what are the distinguishing features by which we recognize a servant in distinction from a master or a free man? Well, I submit to you that the Bible stresses two features by which we would recognize a servant. First, a servant has a commitment of loyalty and compliance to his master. A servant has a commitment of loyalty and compliance to his master. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, no man can serve two masters. You can't serve God and riches. You can't have your supreme loyalty and attachment both to God and to riches at the same time. He also, uh, we also read in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 9, where the centurion says, for I also am a man under authority, and I have under myself soldiers. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And this is the point. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. There's a commitment on the part of the servant not only to loyalty to a master, you can't serve two masters, but also compliance with the master and the master's will and the master's commands, the master's will expressed in his words. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Compliance with his master's will. 
And again, the Apostle Paul underscores this feature by which you recognize a servant in Romans 6.16 when he says, to whom, don't you know, that to whom you present yourselves as servants unto obedience, his servants you are whom you obey. Whether, then he goes on saying, he's speaking spiritually, whether you're the servant of sin or the servant of righteousness. How can you tell whose servants you are? Well, those are the ones you obey. His servants you are whom you obey. There is a compliance with the will of your master if you are that servant. So if you're the servant of sin, you comply with the will of your master's sin. And if you're the servant of righteousness, you comply with the will of your master's righteousness. You're loyal to your master and comply with his will. That's the commitment of servanthood. That's how you recognize a servant. Does that make sense? I didn't make it up what the Bible says. But there's a second thing. And that is, a servant is regarded as inferior in rank or authority to his master. Again, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, a disciple is not above his master, or a servant, sorry, disciples not above his teacher, or a servant above his master or Lord. The master is a superior in authority to his servant. The free man is a peer in authority with both the master and the servant. He's not committed either to be giving orders or taking orders from anybody. So a master and a free man and a servant are all equally human and equally possess every human attribute, and yet they differ greatly from one another in form or distinguishing features. And what it says is that God the Son took, added, the form of a servant. When he became human, when he lowered and impoverished himself, he did so by taking a servant's form. He added the distinguishing features of a servant of God. He didn't have a human master. His master was his God and Father. This is how Isaiah describes Christ and his ministry in chapter 42, verse 1. See what he says. He says, Behold, My servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And again, in John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says this, I am come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's the distinguishing feature of a servant, is a commitment to do the will of his father and master. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, And that the man is the head of a wife. And that God 
is the head of Christ. That is Christ, the God-man in his humanity, is under the authority of his Father. God is the head of Christ. There's nothing inherently demeaning in being under authority. When it says that the husband is a head of a woman that is his wife, that's not inherently demeaning to her any more than it's inherently demeaning to Christ to be under the authority of his father. The head of a woman, that is, who is his wife, is a man, and the head of Christ is God. That's part of his servant's form. In his humanities, under his father's authority, and committed to his father's will, and loyal to his father. In Galatians 4.4, We read of this again. It says that he is born of a woman, born under the law. The supreme divine lawgiver who uttered from Sinai, you shall not kill, you shall not bear false witness, etc. You shall not steal. In his humanity, he became under his own law. What do you say about stuff like this? He took the form of a servant. In this way, he impoverished himself. He emptied himself. He became in his humanity inferior in status to his father, under his father's authority, with a commitment of loyalty to his father, and of compliance with his father's will. The head of Christ is God, born under the law. I came down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. He took a servant's Form. And in this way, he impoverished or emptied himself. But it says also, he emptied himself not only taking a servant's form, he lowered himself, he emptied himself, taking by taking, also by becoming. Look, it says, by becoming in men's likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He looked like an ordinary man. He became not a mere man, but in the likeness of mere men by actually partaking in flesh and blood, by taking to himself a true human nature, a true human body, and a true human soul. In Hebrews 2.14, we read, Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also in like manner 
partook of the same. He partook of flesh and blood. He took to himself a real human nature, a real human body and soul. And by doing that, he became in men's likeness. This amazing. I find this amazing. In his outward appearance, he looked just like any other ordinary man. And like every other ordinary man, he was born and grew up from boyhood to adulthood. In Luke 2.52, we read of his growing up. It says, Jesus advanced in wisdom. His human mind developed and stature. His human body grew from a baby to a full-grown adult male. He increased in wisdom and height. Grew up. His mind and body developed. And like ordinary people, he learned a trade. And like ordinary people, he worked for a living. He was a carpenter. And in this way, God the Son became, as Paul says, in the likeness of men. When people first saw him the first Christmas, all they saw with their eyes was what appeared to be an ordinary human baby. And yet that baby was God the Son. His glory hidden, concealed, veiled in flesh. God the Son in this way impoverished and lowered himself. That he became in men's likeness and took a servant's form. And when he grew up, all they saw was what appeared to be an ordinary human being, a Jewish man, a carpenter, nothing more. I thought, how could I illustrate something like this? Well, illustration of it that came to me was Old Testament story of King Ahab. And the prophet came to him and said, Ahab, you go out to battle, you're going to die today. Ahab said, put this guy in prison. He spoke truth to power. Power didn't like it, so they threw him in prison. I guess Adam, uh, Adam, Ahab, sorry, Adam. <laughs> Ahab didn't believe in uh, freedom of speech. And as most, if not all, totalitarian tyrants don't believe in freedom of speech. And King Ahab certainly did not. But Ahab said, look, even though I'm going to keep this guy in prison until I get home, I'm not just going to go out there to battle in my robes. So he said to Jehoshaphat, you put your robes on, and I'll just go out in the battle dressed like an ordinary man. So when people see me, they'll just think, well, I'm an ordinary soldier. I'm not the king that they're out to get. So he concealed his identity as a king. Of course, did that stop God? I'm killing that guy that day? No, it didn't. No. Some guy, it says, drew a bow at adventure. 
hits him right between the joints of the armor with a fatal mortal wound from which he dies later. But he disguised himself. He didn't show outwardly. Now, here's the difference. Many differences, but one of them is he did it for selfish reasons. He wanted Jehoshaphat to be mistaken for him. And sure enough, the enemy chased Jehoshaphat all around, but God delivered him, and he got killed anyway. He did it for selfish, wicked reasons. Jesus, when he impoverished and abased, humbled, lowered, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and the likeness of an ordinary man, he, he did it unselfishly, out of love. But that's a little kind of a picture of what we're talking about here. This is just, if the Bible didn't say it, if it didn't say it clearly and plainly, it would be like unfathomable. If it's never, I don't believe any human beings would have made up anything like this. How could you make up something like this? It has to be true. Un, it's, it's unfathomable that people would make up a story. But now that brings me then to the mystery of his poverty. So the mystery, the, the, the one divine person, God the Son, at one and the same time here on earth 2,000 years ago, he continues to subsist in his deity in God's form and in his humanity in a servant's form in the likeness of an ordinary human being. He did not cease in his deity to be rich. When, by adding humanity in a servant's form, he became poor with the outward appearance of an ordinary man. In other words, he didn't cease to be God when he partakes in flesh and blood and takes a true human nature. He became what he never was without ceasing to be what he ever was. And this leads us to the fence around God's incomprehensible mystery. Now, just consider with me several aspects of how the scripture shows us the mystery of Jesus Christ, God the Son, becoming poor by taking to himself a true humanity in the likeness of ordinary people in the form of a servant. First of all, the Bible presents us with immutable deity in one person, joined to mutable. Immutable means unchanging, never changes and can't change. And mutable, changing, developing humanity. In Hebrews 1, 8 to 10, we read of his immutable deity. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And you, Lord, in the beginning did lay the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you continue. And they shall wax old. And as a mantle, you roll them up as a garment. And they'll be changed. But you are the same. God the Son and his deity did not change when he impoverished himself, when he 
veiled the glory of his deity in human flesh. And yet, as we saw in Luke 2.52, in his humanity, he was mutable. He changed. His soul developed in wisdom. His body grew in height. And in one person, the mystery is immutable deity joined to changing humanity. Secondly, in his deity, he remains equal with God the Father and in his humanity, inferior in authority with the Father. Equal with the Father. In John 5, 18, we read, for this cause, the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath in their view, but also called God his own father, making himself equal with God. And yet, you find in 1 Corinthians 11.3, the head of Christ is God. In his humanity, he is under divine authority. In his deity, he remains equal with the Father. Again, he is celestial and he is terrestrial, that is, on earth at one and the same time. He remains celestial in his deity. In John 3, 13, we read, and no one has ascended into heaven, but he that descended out of heaven, even the Son of Man, not who was in heaven, but who is in heaven. He still is in heaven, even after he descended out of heaven. How can that be? In his deity, he's everywhere, and his special presence is still in heaven. And yet in his humanity, he's down on earth. John 6.38 says, I am come down from heaven. Well, which is it? Is he in heaven or did he come down from heaven? That's right. You got it. In his deity, the Son of Man is in heaven. He came down out of heaven when he impoverished himself. Taking a servant's form. Taking flesh and blood, a true human nature, becoming in man's likeness. Therefore, behold the mystery. At one and the same time, immutable deity, joined in one person to mutable humanity. Equality with the Father in his immutable deity, inferior to the Father in his humanity. Celestial in heaven in his deity, on earth in his humanity omnipresent in his deity and yet in his human body and soul present at one place at one time. I don't even know what word to use for that. I'll come to that in a minute, but first he's omnipresent. In his deity, God the Son is everywhere, always, as he says in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And in the Great Commission, he says, teaching them, Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things and behold, I 
am with you always, even to the end of the world. He's everywhere, always, everywhere, always, wherever there am I, always there am I. In his deity, everywhere, always with his people, his special presence, everywhere, whenever his people meet. And yet, in his humanity, in Matthew 19, 1, we read, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. His body was not in Galilee and in Judea beyond the Jordan at the same time. I, I made up a word, unipresent, not omnipresent everywhere, but unipresent, one place, one time in his body. Not everywhere, his body's not everywhere, his body wasn't everywhere when he was here on earth, it's not everywhere now, his body's not here, if it were you could see it. Body, where is his body? Heaven, at the right hand of God, that's where his body is. In his humanity, he's unipresent, one place at a time. In his deity, he's omnipresent. One and the same person? That's right. That's the mystery. And therefore, at one and the same time, this one person, God the Son incarnate, continues to subsist in God's form and in his humanity has had, when he was here, the form of a servant. In God's form, in his deity, he was invisible, no body, invulnerable to temptation and harm, celestial, his special presence, permanently in heaven, regal, enthroned in heaven, and unapproachable, dwelling in lethal light that did not cease to be true of God the Son in his deity when he impoverished himself. And yet at the same time, at the same time, he was not only invisible in his deity, he was visible in his humanity with a true human body, real flesh and blood. He was vulnerable to temptation and harm and bodily suffering and death while he was on earth in his humanity. He was terrestrial. His bodily presence was on earth one place at a time. He had a servant's form. He was God's servant, obedient to God in subjection to God's law. And he was approachable. In his outward appearance, he seemed like an ordinary man. No halo. But you looked at him, you saw a likeness. Amen. What do you make of that? You find that to be, well, I find it to be incomprehensible mystery. One person, God the Son, at one and the same time, immutable deity, immutable humanity, equal in his deity, inferior in his humanity, celestial in his deity, and at then when he was there, terrestrial in his humanity, and now his humanity is resurrected and taken into heaven. Omnipresent in his deity and in bodily form, 
his humanity one place at a time in God's form, in his deity, in a servant's form, in his humanity. Emptied himself. Taking a servant's form. Becoming in men's likeness without ceasing to be God. Behold the mystery. Which brings me to my final point this morning. Final point is why? Why? What's the motive? We looked at the manner. He emptied himself, concealed, lowered himself, impoverished himself, concealed the glory of his inherent deity by taking a servant's form and becoming in men's likeness. That's the manner in which he became poor. The mystery I just went through, but now why? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer is grace. That though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. Total contrast from Ahab's reason for concealing his royalty. For your sake, he became poor. Why? So that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. That's not talking about you receiving material riches. But everlasting, not, not, let me qualify, not material riches in this life, in this world. But the riches of eternal life in new heavens and earth forever and ever. Which involves not only who knows what in terms of material blessing, but also every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place in Christ, the true riches, the lasting riches, the riches that are never squandered or never stolen or never lost to famine or war, the everlasting eternal riches of glory that come through Jesus Christ. He became poor. He did all this. So that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. And this, the apostle describes as grace. Unmerited favor to those who deserve exactly the opposite. The motivation for all this is grace. It's gospel love. It's a willingness to be reconciled to sinners. It's a free offer of gospel mercy to those who deserve to go to hell. Why did God the Son do this? It wasn't to avoid getting hit by an arrow. It was to show mercy to people that deserve to go to hell. This is all about grace. It's all about mercy. It's all about the gospel. It's all about delivering sinners from the wrath to come. It's all about rescuing sinners from hell. The grace of the Lord Jesus. It's about bringing people who have spiritual poverty to the blessing of spiritual riches. That you through his poverty might be made rich. That's why he impoverished himself. That's why. Did it for sinners. Blessed be God. It's almost like this is too good to be true. The best thing about the gospel is it's true. It's all true. 
It really happened. And it really happened because God is full of grace and Christ is full of grace. And he says to sinners who deserve to go to hell, why will you die? For I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that he turn and live. Turn from a life of selfishness and sinning in repentance. Confess your sins to God. Don't fight against God anymore. Confess your sins to God. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. For whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But what about for sinners saved by grace? It's an example to us. Have this mind in you which also was in Christ Jesus. Calls us to be like him. Not only to be thankful because he called us out of darkness into light and saved us by his grace, but also it calls upon us to be like him, to have the same gracious attitude and heart that he has, to be like our Savior who rescued us from the wrath to come, who impoverished himself to make us rich. So let us be filled with similar Christ-like grace and generosity and kindness and unselfishness in our hearts, in our lives, in the way we handle everything that we have. Does that make sense? Okay, how did he become poor? Became poor by impoverishing and lowering himself by taking a servant's form and becoming in men's likeness. The mystery of this, yes, one person at one and the same time, true deity, true humanity, joined together without confusion or mingling. And it leads us to these mind-boggling seeming contradictions that the Bible presents to us so simply and plainly. In his humanity, this one person. In his deity, this one person. All these things. In his deity, immutable. In his humanity, mutable. In his deity, equal to the Father in his humanity, under the Father's authority. In his deity everywhere, in his humanity, one place at a time. Who can fathom? In his deity, in the form of God, in his humanity, in the form of a servant. And why? Grace. Blessed be God. Praise God. It's all of grace from beginning to end. May God be pleased to write his holy word on our hearts today for his honor and glory. Let's pray.